Look at this man, the savior of others. Has he forgotten himself? Aren't you the Messiah? Asked a son called a criminal, punished there too like the rest. Beside him, another, and his ask is ours. Remember me, please, when your kingdom eventually comes. Today, replies Jesus, whose nails make the kingdom at hand. Minu Marlach, your matanat, your wich me pakarata. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, good morning, Menlo Church. I am so glad to be with you. Um, I just want to just say this publicly. Uh, one of the appeals for us in thinking about coming here was we heard over and over again, hey, Phil, in California, it never rains. So <laughs> you lied to us and um, respect, honestly, respect you for it. But sincerely, we're so glad that you're here, whether you're joining us from one of our Bay Area campuses down in San Jose, Saratoga, Mountain View, San Mateo, or right here in Menlo Park. Maybe you're watching online. We are so glad that you're with us, and we really do consider it a unique privilege that you would consider this community worth learning together about how we find and follow Jesus today. If you're new, I'm especially glad that you're here today as we continue our series, focusing on the last words of Jesus while he was on the cross. And we're focusing on that specifically to help us prepare more fully to get ready to celebrate Easter in just a few weeks together. Maybe you're trying out one of our shared practices like uh, fasting together in this season. Maybe you're listening to some of our podcasts or you're taking part in the Lent devotional guide. I hope that over this season, you are getting a chance to really focus on being more intentional than you have been before. But before we get started, before we dive back in, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before or never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is because the work of waking us up to find and follow Jesus is not work I can do, no matter how eloquent my words might be. It's not work you can do. It's actually work that God does. And he says he shows up uniquely when we humble ourselves. So would you pray with me? God, we confess our inability to come to you on our own. We confess our propensity to run the other direction, even when we most need you. Would you be with us in these next several moments together, wherever we're watching this from, whatever our current situation or experience in life is. For those that know you, God, that we would walk closer to you. For those who don't, God, that we would choose to follow you today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for you. Did you know uh, that Chuck E. Cheese is actually better than Disneyland? Did you know that? I know, it's pretty surprising. It's also not true, but um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought it was true. And the reason that I thought it was true is because I was lied to by my family. So just want to make sure you know that. My dad had taken my three siblings, I'm the youngest of four, to Disneyland to be able to experience as a family trip. But they did not think that I, ready, this is like a gasp moment, so get ready. Um, they did not think that I would be old enough to appreciate it. You guys crushed it. Thank you so much. I want to play that for my family, just that moment. And so they took me instead to Chuck E. Cheese. And they convinced, I know, and they convinced me that Chuck E. Cheese was better than Disneyland. Leading up to the trip and after for an embarrassing amount of time, um, I actually thought that Chuck E. Cheese was better 
than Disneyland. Uh, I would rub it in to my siblings that they got to go to Disneyland, but I got to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And they showed the greatest amount of restraint I have ever seen them show because they did not correct me. I'm sure they smirked. I'm sure they joked about it behind my back. But in the moment, they were like, oh, yeah, no, that, tell me more about that pizza, you know? I didn't go to Disneyland for the first time until I was in my late 20s. And spoiler alert, it's a lot better than Chuck E. Cheese, if you did not know that. Sometimes we can do that, where we place this weird artificial ceiling on our lives of what something can rise to, of what we can experience. And it's way too limited oftentimes when we think about it in our faith, in our pursuit of Jesus. Some of you, you have been in church for a long time. And the vision that you have of an abundant life with Jesus today and an eternal life waiting has slowly drifted into a Chuck E. cheese size paradise. But I'm telling you, what you have settled for, Menlo Church, if you have done that, is far too small. Over the next few minutes together, uh, we're going to return to the scene of the crime, the hill where Jesus was hung on a cross so that the rebellion of mankind could be rectified and our relationship forever could be restored. It wasn't an example for us to follow. It wasn't a way to be reminded that your behavior needs to improve. It was something so much better from the Savior of the world for you. Some of us in our pride, we don't think we actually need all of that from Jesus. We think Jesus maybe went a little bit overboard. And we know some people need it. But for us, we feel like we're contributing to the equation of our forgiveness. Others of you, you feel like, you know what, God's given up on me. Or maybe you've given up on God and you've gone too far or done too much. And that what we see on the cross is not relevant to you. And the good news about both of those pictures of self-deception is that the cross can help. Because the cross defeats our self-deceit. The cross defeats our self-deceit, whether you want to deceive yourself into thinking you don't need it or deceive yourself into thinking you're disqualified from it. As we step back into this moment, continuing where we left off last week, we see three profiles of people in one interaction. And the first person is reacting in insecurity, reacting in insecurity, which is sort of the default state that all of us run to in moments of difficulty. As a little kid, when I discovered that I had been deceived into my thinking about Disney and Chuck E. Cheese, honestly, I wouldn't give in for a while. They would tell me all this great stuff at Disneyland and why it was so much better than Chuck E. Cheese. And I'd be like, well, Space Mountain, oh, that sounds great. Have you seen animatronic puppets? Didn't think so, right? It was core to me to defend myself. It's funny to think about, but at the time, I was not willing to admit that I was wrong out of a sense of insecurity, out of a fear of being seen or feeling foolish. And for lots of us, that's the way we live our lives. We live our lives with this quiet desperation where we think we have convinced everyone that we are not insecure when actually everyone knows we are. I wonder, where is your insecurity these days? Where is it keeping you from seeing yourself more clearly right now? Is it at work with a mistake or a performance gap that you just can't acknowledge and ask for help with? Maybe it's with your child that you love so deeply, but you are in over your head and you're not sure how to get help. What if instead, what if instead of adjusting our narratives, we trusted the narrator of our lives instead? What if you could be honest that you're in over your head, that that class is too hard, that the emotions are too big, that the questions are too heavy? And God couldn't meet you right there, wherever you really are. I've got great news. He can. He will. He's actually waiting for you right now. 
The first profile in this passage, it comes from someone who couldn't see past their own insecurity. It reads this way. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You may not know this, but there are actually four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament Bible. We call them the Gospels, the good news of how God sent his son to live on your behalf and to ultimately offer the perfect life, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect restored relationship to all of mankind. There are lots of stories that we see in all four of those gospel accounts that line up. This one has some unique details in Luke's account. And if you'll remember, Luke is a physician by trade who got a whole bunch of eyewitness accounts to create the most detailed gospel account of Jesus' life that we have. He gives us unique detail in this story. In another account of Jesus' life written by Matthew, a tax collector, what we learn in this story is that these criminals being hanged were uh, violent robbers. And on top of that, these thieves both started by mocking Jesus. We focus on one uniquely in a second, but both of them started by taking shots at Jesus, just like so many others did that we looked at last week. Now, if you were with us last week, I set the scene for how brutal this execution was, how uniquely painful and protracted this death sentence was 2,000 years ago, and how different this experience was from how we often think about it when we glaze over these passages in our preparation for Easter, which is why we're doing it this way. Some people, they were watching in shock, while others were willing to mock the creator of the universe. There was a sign that Jesus was the king of the Jews, a mocking title that the Jews rejected as blasphemy, and Rome was using as a warning in case anyone ever thought about claiming to be the king of the Jews, who were not allowed to have a king. See, the one that we hear directly from in this moment, even in the midst of the irony that this title was probably the most true title could have existed. Jesus was not just the king of the Jews. He was the king over the entire universe. There were these criminals that had the same fate and were mocking him the same way. And this one that we look at first, he says what many others already were saying. He says, if you're the Messiah, if you're the chosen one, if you're the rescuer of the world. Why don't you save us? He wasn't really asking. In his final breaths, as it was painful to even speak, with the same consequences in front of him as we talked about with Jesus last week, he was joining the crowd around him. He was taking one more cheap shot. More than that, he was deflecting the crowd from looking at him and his brutalized and exposed body and the plaque that showed why he was being killed. He was doing what bullies do. He was hurting others to avoid others hurting him or feeling hurt inside himself. I wonder, what will you do with this? Do you ask God for help with things because you're supposed to, but you know he doesn't really care? You don't feel like he's really going to do anything about it? Or maybe you ask him for some things and you demand he show up in certain ways because in your relationship with God, he answers to you. But what if your relationship with God, even when you and I would ask him for things, is actually rooted in love? What if when we ask him for things, it's in the asking that we find him? Jesus shows us himself as perfectly kind, perfectly compassionate. 
In this moment, as he sees other people doing absolutely horrible things, he finds himself expressing what he has his entire life. Something to consider in this moment is that their mocking of Jesus was actually self-destructive. Just like it hurt Jesus to take these breaths, it hurt them to take these breaths and continue to mock him as well. It was a painful acceleration of the death of a criminal for him to take a cheap shot at Jesus. I wonder in your own life, are there things out of a desire to deflect, out of a desire to stay defensive, out of a desire to not let people in, coping mechanisms or patterns in your life, maybe addictions, where not only are they not helping you, they're actually hurting you, and you just think, yeah, but they help me get through the day. They don't. If only the criminal could have seen what the cross could do, because the cross then and the cross now defeats our self-deceit. That whatever lie you are telling yourself about why you can't ask for help or why you can't get help isn't true. The second person is the other criminal. And his profile is one of someone who is reflecting honestly. Reflecting honestly. Now what's so important to spot in this profile is that honest reflection, it takes time. We need space and margin And in a cultural moment where it is so easy to give up all of our attention to our devices that become our vices, to be able to give up all of our attention to entertainment that will take all that we give it, to distractions everywhere, it takes intentionally focusing. It's one of the reasons that some of you are trying out fasting, because fasting creates focus. We say no to some good things so that we might be able to direct our focus more specifically. The obvious contrast in that reflection in the next thief on the cross is the opposite of the deflection that we see in the first thief. There's self-awareness. There's a willingness to admit fault. There's a commitment to something bigger than himself. We see it this way in the story. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember that this thief started by mocking Jesus just like the thief on the other side did. And somewhere along the way, his condemning became commending. What do you think made that change? What do you think hanging on that cross and bleeding out, sharing the same faith, or sharing the same fate as Jesus, what do you think actually made the turn? I think at some point he saw that the posture of Jesus showed true character. See, as we watch people in our lives go through difficult times, they show their character by the way that they endure. Their true character is revealed in their posture. Criminals on the way to the crucifixion, they had nothing to lose. They would say or do anything that was the most grotesque, vile thing ever, because what more could you do to them? Jesus, on the other hand, on his way to the cross and all through the experience on the cross, continued to be kind, continued to be loving, continued to be patient. And just moments ago, last week we talked about it, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so this criminal sees in Jesus something he had never seen before. And this this person of Jesus, he, he ran out of categories for this person of Jesus. 
See, the thing is, Jesus, he didn't have to die. He chose to. He wanted to. For you. See, some of you, you're Christians today. Some of you are watching online right now because there was somebody in your life who's a follower of Jesus who broke all your categories. Somebody that you watched endure hardship, somebody that you watched walk with grace, somebody that when you thought about Christians, you thought, well, Christians always do this. Christians never do this. Christians are always like this. Christians are never like this. And that person just broke all of those categories. And God used them to show you that the person and work of Jesus in their life could be the work he could do in yours. I wonder, I wonder maybe why for you, you wouldn't take a step towards the person that could do that in the lives of others. You aren't sure about God maybe, but you've seen someone endure pain in a way that you can't explain. That's what I think that thief saw. At some point, we see the thief no longer able to restrain himself as his friend continued to mock Jesus. And at some point, he stopped his friends berating Jesus. And so he takes this deep, painful breath in and he couldn't be quiet anymore. Jesus was quiet. The other thief, this total stranger, wasn't. He chimes in with where honest reflection always takes us, and that is repentance. Repentance is when our mind and our life direction change. We see repentance in the saved thief on the cross. And it starts with the fear of God. It always does. He says, do you not fear God? Like, what do you think you're doing? He chimes in with that question because even though he wasn't living in line with the Hebrew scriptures, something was different with Jesus. Fearing God means understanding that we should long for a right relationship with God and we should understand that there are God-given consequences when we don't have that restored relationship. The work of God in Jesus, it doesn't just save us from ourselves. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God that we all deserve and that this thief had a sense of that very reality in his own life. He could feel his own life force leaving him. And yet God's overwhelming love for him, hopefully God's overwhelming love for you, woke him up, intervened so that he would see the kind of relationship that Jesus was prepared to die to provide. He goes from the fear of God as a first step in what it looks like to experience um, repentance to understanding the confession of sin, the condition of rebellion. We've talked about sin before. It's in the human genome. It's that we are not as we ought to be. And then the implications of that are we make decisions that are in line with that internal disease. He says that Jesus had never sinned. Said to his friend, to this other thief on the other side, we're here because we deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. And yet he is still here. He hasn't done anything wrong. The plaque that we talked about a few minutes ago that describes Jesus as the king of the Jews, the reason for that is because they normally used plaques to identify what the crime of the person being executed was. And after three years of public ministry, 33 years on earth, a show trial where they tried to get whoever they could to say whatever they would to be able to condemn Jesus, they couldn't come up with anything. And so they came up with this title, King of the Jews, that if anything, only affirmed Jesus' sinlessness. 
Finally, we see him believe and ask for grace. Even if you've heard this story a hundred times, this little framework of repentance might have been hidden in the text for you, that you would say, God, I have an understanding and reverence for you. God, I'm willing to admit and confess who I am and who you are, and I'm willing to ask for help. This thief who was mocking Jesus minutes earlier was now making him Lord forever. At a moment where the physical pain could have blinded these criminals, there was one thief on the cross who became more focused, not less. In his important book on how we focus our faith, Pete Scazzaro calls out the need for this kind of self-awareness in the midst of pain this way. He says, when we deny our pain, losses and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Sad to say that is the fruit of much of our discipleship in our churches. But when I began to allow myself to feel a wider range of emotions, including sadness, depression, fear, and anger, a revolution in my spirituality was unleashed. I wonder, Menlo Church, when is the last time that you pushed the pain a little bit deeper out of a sense of duty or responsibility? That's what you're supposed to do as a good Christian. When God invites you to honestly express your feelings of what's going on underneath, that he wants to meet you in the deepest places of your pain, hurt, and loss, your own cross moments of hurt and loss, he is waiting for your honest expression of that right now. Because the cross defeats our self-deceit. No matter where you're lying to yourself, no matter where you've convinced yourself that God is disinterested, that isn't true. And finally, we see the profile of Jesus and how he responds here as we see him responding with mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are these familiar terms that if you've been in church for a little while, we use on a pretty regular basis, but we don't always define. So let me do that very quickly for you. Put very simply, mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. We actually need both. Mercy is God restraining the hand of judgment that we all deserve and not giving us that. Grace is this favor, this incredible standing with God that Jesus has that we are given even though we don't deserve it. We need judgment restrained and we need favor extended. That's what mercy and grace do for us. Jesus is being mocked with these thieves. Everyone around him is mocking him. Even as he's bleeding out and will shortly die the way that most people died on the cross from asphyxiation. So every word accelerates his death, but he shows kindness again. Again, he responds because he wants to, not because he has to. Imagine this moment with these thieves, one mocking Jesus so much that the other thief chimes in and defends a stranger. A stranger he could tell didn't deserve the punishment that they were getting. A stranger who carried strange confidence and kindness even now in the final hours of their lives. Jesus most certainly looked over at him with blood-stained tears, running down his face, unparalleled compassion and love in his eyes. And he said to this thief, truly I say to you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. What a magnificent moment. And for the saved thief on the cross, this moment felt like a promise he didn't even know was available. And for the skeptical criminal on the other side, it actually confirmed his suspicions. I guess he can't do anything. We're just issuing platitudes now. We're all going to die. And isn't that interesting that we often come to a different place, not because of what's happening, but because of where we are when it happens. You see, all these people, they were convinced that if Jesus couldn't save himself, he could save no one. But what they didn't realize is it's because Jesus didn't save himself that he could offer salvation to everyone. It was in the act of surrender. It was in the act of sacrifice that we could find healing, hope, and relationship forever. Jesus was promising something that the converted thief didn't even know existed. He didn't know it was possible. The thinking of the time for the Jewish people was something called Sheol or the grave. It was like a waiting room for the one day, someday kingdom of the Messiah. But Jesus, he didn't just offer him mercy and grace. He offered him paradise, the picture of eternity with God. And not only that, but that he would experience that picture that very day. Imagine that in part of the story. Imagine that moment for that saved thief. What that promise must have felt like. At some point, that thief couldn't sustain life anymore. I don't know if you ever feel this way, but I'm a morning person. And so at night, there are times, mostly when Alyssa is trying to talk to me late at night, where like, I want to stay awake and listen. Like, I really do. But my body is just, like, shutting down. It's like, you're going to sleep now. And I just feel my eyes get heavier and my breath become more labored, and eventually I will fall asleep. And I wonder if for the thief on the cross there was this moment where he could no longer keep his eyes open. And then this moment where his labor became heavier, or breathing became more and more labored. And at some point, his breathing stopped. At some point, he crossed from life to death. Then in that same moment, he crossed from death to life once again. Except this time, when he opened his eyes, do you know what he saw? Paradise. I imagine he saw Jesus fully healed and glowing with his divine glory no longer concealed. The holes from the nails of the cross were still there, but they were closed scars, not open wounds. I imagine Jesus giving him this long, loving hug that he could never do before because both of them were hanging when they met. And Jesus whispered how much he loved him, that he would never hurt again. He would never hurt himself. He would never hurt others, that the consequences of sin were gone forever. Not because he had paid his debt off. That's impossible. But because Jesus had extended mercy and grace by paying that debt off beyond anything he could have comprehended or even articulated. That feeling, that belief that this moment is coming for you if you're a follower of Jesus is so important. And it's so important that that belief injects its way into our life today. As a matter of fact, scholar and theologian Charles Spurgeon paints it this way. He says, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. 
Menlo Church, I'm praying for a great faith in your life, a great faith with whatever you face that you might experience that today. Paradise is a place that waits for you if you've chosen to follow Jesus. Not because Jesus had to die for you, but because he chose to, because he wanted relationship with you. But when Jesus describes what he came to do, there's this important reminder for us, especially in the way we think about this passage today. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Following Jesus isn't just about where you will go when you die. For some of you, it's about where you go as you live. That really is the thing that needs to wake up inside of you. And the fact that you go there with the presence of God inside of you. It's easy to imagine in this moment, Jesus looking at the other thief and giving him the cold shoulder, maybe glaring at him. I don't think that's what Jesus did. I think that Jesus looked at the other thief with even greater compassion, even greater sympathy and sadness because Jesus knew what was waiting for him too. And if you don't know Jesus, I think he's looking at you with that same kind of compassion. But for you, you still have time. Menlo Church, Christian or not, God loves you. And his call is that you would follow the path of repentance that we see in the saved thief on the cross. And it will absolutely make you a strange person in our culture some days. But as a 20th century pastor and author puts it, that's core to the path of Jesus. A.W. Tozer says it this way. He says, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for, for one whom he has never met talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is the weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worse. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so that he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes. That's not just about heaven in the far off future. That's heaven in you right now. Heaven isn't just coming someday for Menlo Church. It's invading today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's invading this kingdom through you, through us. And so for some of you, it's about asking God to wake you up to that, reminding you of that, because you have settled for something far too small. And for others of you, you have never made a decision to follow Jesus. You're that other thief on the cross. And while you would say, I haven't been mocking Jesus, maybe you've been mocking Christians, maybe you've been mocking the idea of following Jesus, and you feel this work that God's doing in your life right now, that if this is true, if this reality exists, you want in. So in just a second, I'm going to pray. And if you need to make a decision to follow Jesus, you just pray this prayer right along with me. And after I say amen, we're going to listen to a song together that the team uh, is going to sing for us and some images on the screen to maybe inject some of the emotion of our faith back into our daily walk, this idea of heaven into the way we think about living here and now. Would you pray with me? In the quiet of your heart, if you're 
someone that needs to follow Jesus, you just pray this right along with me. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for making a path back even though I don't deserve it. Thank you for loving me beyond my capacity. Thank you for loving me on days that I feel pretty unlovable. Thank you for before I was even born, dying to give me new life. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to give my future to you. Would you give me the life that surpasses understanding? Would you give me a picture of the eternal future that you gave to this thief 2,000 years ago? Help this Easter, help this Lenten season be one that's not just about religious tradition, but about a renewed relationship, a relationship that can only be found in you. God, we give all this to you. In Jesus' name.